You're listening to the Let's Talk Strata podcast hosted by Mark Mercier. Whether you're a tenant, lot owner, caretaker or industry professional, this podcast is for anyone connected with a body corporate or strata title. Tune in every fortnight to hear thought-provoking discussions with industry leaders and experts on topics both practical and technical that will spark your interest. Welcome to the Let's Talk Strata podcast, a podcast designed to bring cutting-edge views from industry experts and leaders in the strata world. Uh, We're joined today by Chris Irons. Chris is the Body Corporate Commissioner for Queensland. He operates a fairly large and hectic department that uh, administers the Body Corporate and Community Management Act and associated legislation. His office is also in charge of delivering significant and very useful information about body corporate. Uh, to the community and all stakeholders involved. It's a great pleasure to have you on board today, Chris. This is our second episode. It and is, uh, yes. Always great to hear um, the new developments from your office, specifically directly from you and how you see the body corporate world evolving and moving yeah. forwards. Now, what are some of the recent developments you've found in your office moving forward? Some big decisions have come down since we last spoke. I have indeed. First of all, thanks for having me back, Mark. A couple of uh, cases that might be of interest to people who subscribe and listen to your podcast, Mark. I I might kick things off with one that has more or less now been resolved, but I think it's worth pointing out. And for all of these, I think it's worth pointing out as much as the actual case itself is interesting, the consequences and what it means for day-to-day life uh, for a body corporate, I think, is the more important point. So the first one I'm going to talk about is a bit of a mouthful, body corporate for Mount St. John Industrial Park Community Title Scheme versus Superior Stairs and Joinery Proprietary Limited. Now, this was a case that provoked, it's fair to say, Mark, a fair degree of angst when the decision was handed down and uh, then subsequently overturned on appeal. So some calm has been restored, but it was a great moment, I think, to get people reminded about the way things work in terms of body corporate levities and body corporate debt responsibilities, Mm. debt recovery, I should say. So first of all, the original decision was that uh, an owner in a scheme disputed having to pay, I'm paraphrasing quite Mm. a bit here, Mark, but disputed Mm. having to pay their levies. This went to appeal and the appeal court found that in fact, once that two years and two months requirement under the legislation to initiate debt recovery proceedings had expired, there was, in the view of that appeal decision, no further capacity for the body corporate to collect the levy. Now, as you might expect, for many bodies corporate in Queensland who had some outstanding levies for longer than two years and two months or had not even started, that process, that was an alarming uh, Mm. thought that the court had interpreted the legislation that way. Subsequently, it was overturned on subsequent appeal and that two-year, two-month time limit in legislation remains. So no need to panic. But what it does remind people about, I think, is the need for a body corporate to pursue debt. Now, it is a two-way street, and I'll get to the flip side of that in a moment. Mm. But the bottom line at the end of the day is that while a body corporate is not a business, it's not a commercial entity, it still needs funds to operate. If it doesn't have funds to operate on a day-to-day basis, then it just can't execute its statutory responsibilities. Mm. Where does it get those funds from? It gets those funds from the owners. Every owner has a responsibility to cough up, for want of a better expression. At the end of the day, if you are an owner in a scheme, it's your responsibility to pay your levies. Now, there might be any number of reasons why you either can't or indeed don't want to 
pay the levies. The can't side of things I think should be considered quite separately and quite distinctly from the don't want to pay levies. Yeah. From the body corporate's perspective, it is obliged to follow up the collection of those levies from individual owners. And I think this case really reminds bodies corporate throughout Queensland that if you've got an outstanding levy from an owner, it is incumbent. And this is a big message for committees, incumbent upon you to do something about it. As an absolute minimum, you need to be engaging with the owner. You're overdue. What's the issue? Is there an issue? Do you understand? What can be done to resolve the situation? At the end of the day, though, if the levy is outstanding, the levy is outstanding. It needs to be collected like any other outstanding debt. This is where the issue of an owner's inability to pay, I think, becomes a bit more relevant at that point. Bodies corporate are obliged to act reasonably, Mark. That's fairly well established Absolutely. now. Mm. So then the situation arises if you've got an owner who is unable to pay due to circumstances beyond their control. And a really obvious example of that is they've got a medical condition, which means they're not earning an income. Yeah. As the body corporate, what are you meant to do in that situation? Well, you can't get blood out of a stone, first of all, Mark. But what you can do is that you can initiate a discussion and you can get something up and running, maybe in terms of a payment plan. You also, from the body corporate's perspective, do need to act reasonably and consider the special circumstances. And there is a legislative provision about the body corporate's requirement to consider those circumstances. So if somebody has a medical condition and perhaps they're willing to evidence it up to a point, the body corporate needs to take that into account when they are collecting their levy. So that can't be overlooked, mm -hmm. that side of things. And to a certain extent, it puts an onus upon a body corporate to exercise a modicum of compassion, I guess, Mark, if you want to put it that way. But at the end of the day, if there's a levy outstanding, it needs to be collected, Mark. And that's mm -hmm. a, a non-negotiable, I think, that really just emphasises to people, if you are a member of a body corporate, your obligation is to pay. That's how things get done. That's how the insurance gets paid. That's how the maintenance gets done. That's how repairs are done. There's no other option. That case was interesting because there was this... Uh argument about competing limitation periods. So you've got the Limitation of Actions Act, which provides for a six-year time period mm. limitation. And then you've got the body corporate, more specific provision about the body corporate's responsibility. So it was an interesting judgment from the Court of Appeal overturning the District Court's mm. decision about uh, discovering the difference between those two limitation periods and really analysing it and, and placing the onus on the body corporate to take action Otherwise, it potentially loses that ability to then bring the action after that time period, doesn't it? It does, Mark. And mm. I think it's a really good point. And the secondary point is that body corporate levies are not struck arbitrarily yeah. and on a whim. Body corporate levies are struck with specific purposes in mind. There are line items in a budget for the distribution of body corporate levies to be allocated to individual things. So it's not as though the body corporate has plucked a figure out of the air and said, to each owner, we need you to pay this. No, we need you to pay this amount because first of all, it is made proportionate to your contribution. Mm -hmm. Secondarily, the figure is there to pay for these items that are coming up and they're coming up in subsequent years as well. So again, it's not as though there's just an amount of money floating around without any distinction around it at all. The body corporate needs that money for a defined, identified purpose. Mm -hmm. All the more reason they should be collecting it, Mark. Why would they wait yeah. that length of time? Uh, if the money is outstanding, there is a need to pursue it. Yeah. That's the bottom line. And one of the tensions that mm. I think occurs in a body corporate is that... Uh, 
some committees take on board, as they must, their statutory duty to maintain. So I think in the body corporate for St John uh, Industrial Park was the thing about uh, bringing about an EGM to expend monies that some lot owners perhaps thought, well, it's either exorbitant or we shouldn't be doing it now or it's mm. not needed. So this is one of the tensions I think you find on the ground and in that uh, you have large expenditure that's imposed on owners mm. because it's a democratic vote, of course, to approve those special levies and things like that. And um, some owners take a stand and say, well, I don't want to pay it because I don't agree with it. That's a difficult situation and quite separate from the day-to-day running normal levies, admin and sinking Mm. fund levies. But I think this was one of the arguments that was uh, the precipitator of this particular dispute, wasn't it? It was indeed. So it's a good point. And I think what that highlights then is the responsibility of the committee in this situation to be transparent about Mm. this is not just for that situation or for an EGM striking a special levy, but for any budget situation. Be transparent. Be transparent transparent about how you've arrived at a figure, to be transparent about the budget line items, be transparent about what it is if and, and provide the explanation, Mark. Mm. So we're asking for this amount of money. Why are we asking for this amount of money? Because, and whatever the explanation is, and give details about it. We need it for this purpose because it's required under this piece of legislation. Mm. We need it in this period of time. That's why. It's not because we just think it's a nice thing to have sitting in reserve. No, we need it for a specific purpose. So fully appreciate the point of view of the owners who say, look, I don't want to pay it because I don't think it's justified, reasonable, or it's exorbitant. Well and good. So explained it in the first place, maybe a little more definition about why assists in resolving some of that tension. And really it places the onus perhaps on a third party, say a body corporate manager, to provide that necessary guidance to a committee to maybe stimulate that discussion way before that has to happen. Of course, it can't always happen uh, with that uh, luxury of time because some things are more urgent. um, And this is where your office comes in with Mm. urgent applications Mm. and things like that. That's right. Uh, But um, really, it's an onus on the committee to, as you say, be transparent, but uh, also provide information maybe in the form of further explanatory materials in the general meeting notice or invite discussion in the committee meetings prior and disseminate information, invite owner buy-in, if you like, to project perhaps. Yeah, look, I think it's incumbent upon the committee to put themselves in the shoes of the lot owners. Um, Mm. If they are being presented with a potential bill for a special levy for, let's say, $20,000. Not everybody has $20,000 at hand. In fact, I would argue most people do not have that money at hand. Nobody wants to cough up $20,000 in one hit. So explain why you've got to put yourself in the shoes of that individual or that entity. I'm being asked for $20,000. I need to know a bit more about why that's the case. It might not necessarily make it palatable, Mm. Mark, but at least it makes it more understandable. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's a difficult situation uh, when you start getting the the personal dispute coming in on top of all of that. So a lot of these um, soft skills and really um, bringing information in partial and informed way to lot owners. And I guess the smaller the scheme, the bigger the levy potentially where you're splitting it up between a smaller number of owners. What we often find, or not often, but what we do find from time to time, Mark, is that a dispute or a query or a conflict of some sort about payment of a levy 
usually has its roots much further back in time mm. and perhaps about something else altogether. Yeah. And if I could explain it in this way, you've got an owner who perhaps at one point has requested something, maybe approval for something to be done or requested something to be done around the building, got knocked back mm. for no great reason or no reasonable reason. 12 months later, there is a request for special levy to be paid. And you can see that because the well had been poisoned mm. way back at the start, they get to that point, you know what? They didn't approve what I wanted yeah. 12 months ago. So I'm just gonna say no, and I'm gonna be difficult about this budget situation now. Equally, another example of that, Mark, might be in a bylaw enforcement situation where a bylaw has not been uh, universally enforced or not enforced the way in which a particular owner likes. That resentment from that moment carries over later on in the process to when it comes time to talk about money. That owner can, and you can understand the mindset oh, to a certain yes. extent, Mark, I'm just not going to pay it because they didn't do what I asked the first time around. Yeah, it's so, a fit hat, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. and so you resolving that situation is very difficult because, as I said before, things have already started poorly and have continued on. So then it's about having to unravel not just the issue about the money, but all of the other issues that go with it, which is actually, um, as you would well know, Mark, where the conciliation service yeah. that my office offers can actually go towards unraveling some of those deep-seated issues. Not mm. always, frequently though it does. Yeah. yeah, so committees need to sometimes work hard to, so to speak, cleanse the well once it's been poisoned. But that comes through a lot of uh, mindset changes too on the committee, doesn't it? It does, yes, uh, absolutely, Mark. So it um, wouldn't necessarily be a quick process, no. which is difficult for the situation you described before, where things are required very, very quickly mm. for something urgent that mm. needs to be done. That makes it all the more challenging. Yeah, I guess mm. it places some pressure on your office too, because you're going through conciliation and adjudication, mm. and there's a certain pathway unless you can show that it should go to adjudication first. That's right. But uh, do you find a lot of these um, issues that have these deep-seated challenges are resolved at conciliation? Yeah, they are, Mark. Up to three quarters are. We get an agreement mm. at conciliation. And our conciliators are, are actually trained at unravelling the knot in that case. Mm. So somebody comes to my office and they've got a dispute and there is a homogenous group of anxieties and grievances and complaints. The conciliator actually goes through the process of sifting it all out, Mark, to get to a point, okay, what's the, the mm. nub of this issue? Yeah really oftentimes spending the, it does take a long time and mm. it can be a, a bit of a challenging process but getting to that point actually then can go about that reset that you talked about mm. before body corporate detox yeah. let's think about it that's that a nice way. phrase that one <laughs> <laughs> now you see a lot of disputes about bylaws now section 180 talks about uh, limitation of bylaw um, that's in the body corporate and community management act there now short-term letting mm. um, how's that hit your office uh, since you know these new giant entities that have really mm. taken hold like Airbnb and things like that. Yeah look it's a significant issue for us Mark we mm. we get daily inquiries about that and we get some disputes about it as well. You mentioned there before the provisions of the legislation about bylaws are and certain prohibitions on mm. certain types of bylaws 
when it comes to short-term letting, that this is the issue that we're talking about. And I would say that when it comes to short-term letting, it's one of the few parts of the legislation, Mark, that I think is reasonably black and white when it comes to adjudication yeah. and dispute resolution. So I'm paraphrasing again here, Mark. I didn't bring my copy of mm-hmm. legislation with mm-hmm. me. But I think it's if a lot can be ordinarily used for a residential purpose, then a bylaw cannot be made prohibiting the use of the lot, the way in which the lot is used, which is essentially what short-term letting is. So Airbnb becomes the catch-all, if you like, for Mm. short-term letting. And there are many, many platforms out there for people to let out their apartment. Airbnb is probably the best-known one, so we'll keep talking about Airbnb in this context, Mm. Mark. I get why people are concerned about Airbnb. If you are a lot owner and you are living there, so you're an owner-occupier, and your next door neighbour is letting out their apartment on Airbnb, and particularly in a concentrated tourism area, Surfers Paradise Mm. would be a classic example of that, perhaps North Queensland as another. And every couple of days you are seeing a new set of people come through the building who do not know their way around it, perhaps don't take the necessary care that they would if they were living there much longer or more permanently because they're only there one or two days. They're not that concerned about how much noise they create, Mm. for example, or whether they're taking glass down by the pool or where they're parking because they know that they're away in a couple of days. Mm. So I completely get the perspective of owners and committees who have concerns about short-term lending. On the other hand, though, Mark, the legislation is pretty clear about this. And if I own a lot and for whatever reason I decide I want to let out on Airbnb, and it's really important, I think, to remember that the original purpose of Airbnb way back in the day was to meet people from other places, Mm. other cultures, other countries, literally for the purposes of establishing a network and a community. That's where it started. And of course, uh, of course, now it's a commercial entity for a lot of people. There is still that small pocket of people who let out on Airbnb specifically because they like the idea of interesting new people from a different culture coming and staying and experiencing their world. That's a minority, I would think, Mm. these days. So it's a commercial entity. But I think it's always important to remember that's where it started out. Now we have a situation where short-term letting is a commercial enterprise and pretty much anybody can do it with a little bit of organising. From the point of view of that owner, if I want to let out my apartment on Airbnb, then why can't I do that? It's my apartment. We've had a number of disputes come to my office in which a body corporate has purportedly passed a bylaw which Mm. prohibits short-term lending or has put some limitations on short-term lending. And all of them uh, uniformly, Mark, have been found to be invalid bylaws by an adjudicator. So there's been a variety of arguments used by a variety of bodies corporate about this, trying to define and redefine what residential means in this context. I think it's fair to say the adjudicators have consistently found that residential means residential. Just because you are using your lot for the purposes of Airbnb and a commercial undertaking doesn't change the fact that Mm. it's still residential. That's the way it has gone up until this point. Every case is always considered upon its merits. Um, So with that in mind and with things being reasonably cut and dried, uh, what I tend to say to people is, and particularly from the point of view of a committee that's got some real concerns about Airbnb happening in their scheme. Okay, what is your actual concern now then? Try and narrow the focus. If we accept that as a concept, 
Airbnb is not going to be outlawed in this context and there might be other initiatives at mm. government level that might have some impact. You see it happening interstate and overseas. Yeah. Various laws are being introduced to uh, restrain the way in which Airbnb operates. Mm. But, but that, whenever that happens, if that happens, Mark, that's a separate yeah. issue. For the here and now, if you're a committee and you've got some concerns, rather than hold a strong ideological and philosophical opposition to Airbnb, narrow your focus. Mm. So what is your issue? Is your issue security? Is your issue parking? Is it noise? Is it something else? Then focus your attention on those issues. Mm. Um, one of the stories I like to tell in seminars, Mark, uh, is that once upon a time, uh, I was an occupier in a community title scheme here in Brisbane in an apartment complex in Fortitude Valley. Mm. As you might expect, being in Fortitude Valley, it wasn't necessarily the quietest place mm. in the world. Okay, well and good. There was one weekend where there was a fairly raucous party that occurred quite late in the morning. Not from me, I stress, but from <laughs> one of my neighbours. Anyway... I think a day or two later, the on-site manager for that scheme put a letter in every mailbox so they didn't target the people who held the party. They put a letter in every mailbox and they said, just a reminder, we have noise bylaws in this building. 10 until 6 is when the noise is meant to stop. A bit of an explanation ensued about what a bylaw was and how they operated. And the final paragraph of this letter, Mark, was what said words to the effect of, look, if you're having a party and you want to kick on with it, take it up the road. There are some great bars up there. Mm -hmm. uh, I just thought that was a great way yeah. of addressing the problem, uh, clarifying that we're not here to stop you living your life. This is from the body corporate's yeah, perspective. Yeah. What we are here to do, though, is to regulate for everyone. So first of all, it's that reminder about bylaws. You can't make the assumption that everybody knows or mm. that everybody is aware that they are causing a problem. So tell people, mm. make it clear, establish that benchmark so there's no confusion moving forward. I told you on this date what the bylaws were. Provide people an option, take it up the road. Then you can see how this works in future mm. for the next time it happens. And particularly if it's from the same lot or the same group of occupiers, it's much easier then, I think, from the yeah. body corporate's perspective to follow through on that issue and to follow through if they need to, say, a noise bylaw yeah. breach or a nuisance undertaking. It's consistent yeah. with the body corporate acting reasonably, yeah. though, isn't it? Yeah, and, it is. And also, I mean, you build the bridge of uh, community living and, mm. and understanding, but like you say, there's other bylaws typically mm. within the CMS, Community Management Statement, that will address those other underlying issues, as you say, like noise. Mm. It might be parking, but... Do you find that the short-term occupants are less invested, perhaps, in those bylaws and maybe not even told about them as they I, I think be. the latter, Mark, not, yeah. not even aware. I, I mean, you mm. can, from the, uh, the most obvious example there of somebody from overseas, a, a backpacker who has found a place on Airbnb and come to Brisbane and staying two nights in an apartment, all they care about is finding the place that they booked yeah. to stay in and then going out and exploring the city. That's what they care about. Mm. You go to them and say, oh, were you aware of this bylaw about noise? I'm sure their first question is, what's a bylaw? So, mm. you know, no, it, that's a, a difficulty. Maybe even the owner who is letting it out on Airbnb doesn't know. Yeah, Mark, uh, you know, go back a few steps. Do they even know? Yeah. So this is where really rudimentary things like having a copy available in the foyer mm. or somewhere that is prominent might actually be the way to go. Look, 
I appreciate that this presents a, a real challenge for somebody's corporate, uh, and I don't get me wrong, I am sympathetic, completely sympathetic, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, there was a recent particular case, um, which is where this discussion all stems from, where there was an adjudication matter that came to my office, mm-hmm. and the adjudicator found that that bylaw prohibiting short-term letting was invalid. It was subsequently appealed to QCAT and QCAT reaffirmed the adjudicator's decision. This was a scheme in Noosa. So look, it's fairly cut and dried, as I said Mm. before, Mark. Mm. Now, that's not to say that laws may not change or different other things may happen. That's not also to say that there are not issues from a local council zoning perspective, Mark, uh, and that's quite separate to what I'm talking about. I am purely talking here about from the body corporate perspective. If people have concerns about zoning laws not being complied with as a consequence of somebody letting out their lot on Airbnb, we'll have at it Mm. with the local council and pursue it that way. That might be an option. And of course, there are many other consequences that an owner letting out an Airbnb needs to be aware of. Mm. There are financial implications, there are tax implications, any number of other implications. So it's not just uh, a matter of somebody waking up one day and say, you know what, I'm going out this week and I'm letting out my place on Airbnb. There are a few other hurdles to jump through from the committee's perspective. If you're concerned, why not casually remind them about some of those hurdles? Mm. Or why not casually even make some inquiries with the local council, Mark? Oh, absolutely. Mm. And uh, there's multi-facets to these issues. And um, for those listeners out there um, wanting to get a bit of further detail, uh, the case of um, the Body Corporate Fair, Hilton Park and uh, Colin mm. Robertson is probably the, That's the leading yep. current case that uh, discusses um, the some of the complexities. There were uh, interesting arguments raised in that case, but yeah, ultimately it comes down to you can't uh, restrict the type of residential use, strata right. property like yep. that. Now, I guess one of the easy ways to, and one of the common repercussions of of short-term lending is the nuisance provisions and we've got section Mm. 167 in the act that says uh, you know you can't uh, impact on the uh, enjoyment Mm -hmm. of common property or someone using common property or even someone's lot Mm. and you can't create a hazard you Mm. you can't do any of those things these are typical things that are associated with those short-term lettings and uh, are things that the body corporate can through the use of a bylaw as well and Typically, there's a noise bylaw, certainly the standard ones have a to maybe warning letter, contravention notice. There's a pathway, isn't there? There absolutely is. So, I mean, there is a prescribed process under legislation to enforce a bylaw, Mark. It's not as simple as saying you have enforced a bylaw, therefore you must stop. No, no, no. Um, uh, The way in which I like to describe it, Mark, is that a bylaw breach is an allegation, basically. So, I am alleging that you have breached a law. Now, you've got to bear in mind that if I were to say to you, Mark, I think you've done something wrong and I think you should do something about it, you're not just going to sit there and say, yeah, yeah, sure, mm-hmm. I, I did, and sure, I'll do something about it if you know or believe that you didn't. Yeah. And you certainly need an opportunity to be able to respond. And what sometimes happens, Mark, when it comes to bylaw breaches or, or nuisance uh, yeah. issues is that you've got a situation where clearly something is going awry and it's provoking some challenging reactions and challenging situations. Nobody's arguing about Mm. that. You've got to go through a process of what is effectively natural justice to see this through. So if you've got a lot owner that is causing, in your opinion, excess noise, you you don't just bash uh, a bylaw breach on their Mm. door and say, you're making too much noise, stop it now, or all of these things will happen to you. 
you must go through a process. You must give them an opportunity to respond. And, of course, Mark, you need to evidence it Absolutely, uh, as well. Absolutely, yeah. uh, And one of the issues that my office encounters on an almost daily basis with people is that they know they've got an issue with noise. We'll keep using the noise example. Mm. They know that there's a noise that's bothering them, and they know this because they didn't get any sleep or they're just consistently bothered by it. Okay, well, where's the evidence of that? Or I, I know because I hear the noise. No, no, no. What's the evidence of it? And by evidence, we're talking about a log yeah. or we're talking video or audio recordings. Yeah. If it's, for example, a dog barking next door, Mark, Okay. When? How? More to the point, how do you know it's that dog next door? Is it the dog downstairs? Is it the dog in the neighbouring body corporate? Is it a dog that happened to be walking past at that point? You can't make those assumptions. You need to evidence it because, again, the bylaw breach process is alleging something Mm. against somebody else, Mm. which is why it is so prescriptive, Mark, which is why the legislation requires the level of detail it does. And it is a frustration for parties who want to lodge an application with my office to enforce a bylaw breach. And we say to them, okay, have you gone through the process? No. Well, you can't pursue this any further. And that, of course... It's frustrating. It's frustrating. Mm -hmm. But the point remains that if you haven't done that process, you technically haven't afforded somebody some natural justice potentially, Mark, and it fails on that Mm. basis. And then there's an issue about currency as well. I mean, it happens reasonably often that we get people lodging bylaw enforcement applications for bylaw enforcement, Mm. Mark, and uh, parking is a really good example of that. And it might be six months since the last kind of communication with the alleged recalcitrant occupier first question my office is going to ask is well what why why now what, yeah. what's happening now and, and the answer is it might well be oh look we just haven't gotten around to it to this point well if you haven't gotten around to it to this point how do we know that it's still current uh, how do we know that there's actually a dispute where's the evidence that this problem remains in force mm. then we come back to the evidence situation as well and it's Mark. the right type of evidence too mm. and and uh, going back to the noise issue mm. noise just happens mm. and it's very subjective how loud something is so mm. you might even need a, a decibel meter and that, reader to really show okay this was as loud as a jet engine or no this was just the noise as loud as you and I talking on on, on the balcony. It, it's a great point, Mark, because mm. I, I, and the good context for considering that is in a situation where hard flooring has been laid down yeah. in a lot and the noise transference to the lot below. Mm. There was a recent adjudication order along these lines, and I'm paraphrasing what the adjudicator said, but they essentially the respondent, the people who had laid down the hard flooring, said... We're not doing anything in this lot that is not day-to-day stuff. To which the adjudicator says, well, that may well be, but simply because you are doing day-to-day stuff doesn't avoid your responsibility for complying with a noise bylaw. So you're saying to me, we're not causing any excess noise, we're not having wild parties, we're not walking across the hard flooring in stilettos 24 hours a day. Okay, that's great, and you may not be doing any of those things. But your day-to-day activities are still causing the noise, Mm. so you're still in breach of the noise bylaw. goes to your point there, Mark. Simply because you aren't actively doing anything 
does not mean that it avoids your responsibility to comply. Yeah, or doing anything out, out of mm, the ordinary. Right. Now, we, we've got uh, bylaws, and you'll come across them all the time, that says, uh, well, for hard flooring, there's a certain sound rating, mm-hmm. and they can be a bit confusing at mm-hmm. the best of times, mm-hmm. the different types of um, mm-hmm. sound ratings that are available. Uh, so it really comes down to the owner being responsible, liaising with their contractor, liaising with the committee, getting approval, providing the necessary information mm-hmm. about what their proposal is, getting the approval and making sure that it's within the bylaws but some bylaws perhaps express a sound rating that is almost impossible when mm-hmm, you look mm-hmm. at the infrastructure and the mm-hmm. and the the structural integrity of the building itself maybe it's not achievable. That's right. And so that's when uh, the argument about whether or not what that bylaw is requiring is reasonable comes into play. Mm. There are plenty of adjudicators' decisions, Mark, in which the decibel rating has been explored in a reasonable amount of mm. detail. And, uh, anybody who's listening to this who has some concerns or queries about that sort of thing, have a look at some adjudicators' orders in which this has been delved into mm. in some detail. Uh, there are certainly a number there. It's also, uh, I think, the, there's information available on both state and federal government websites about uh, these are construction the construction yeah. regulators about noise then there's also information about how to what's called dampen noise as mm-hmm. well so there might be situations might where you can't do away with noise and that that's an impossibility yeah. But you can mitigate and reduce and dampen the noise. And it's really obvious small things such as putting maybe a coaster or some foam underneath table legs, rugs, carpets, taking off high heels Mm -hmm. when you're walking across the floor. Mm -hmm. That's a really, really rudimentary thing. And yet having a discussion with your neighbour about that might actually go a long way towards resolving Mm -hmm. some of the issue. It might be only one component of it, Mark, but maybe one component reduced gets us towards getting a resolution about the whole thing. Oh, it narrows the mm. scope of the dispute and, yeah. and it's about community living yeah. as well, isn't yeah. it? So so whilst you can walk with your high heels on a wooden floor mm. and maybe you know there's an impact mm. and you choose not to mm. because you say, I'm entitled to. Yeah, you know, if you're going to conduct... But tap dancing at midnight every night in your life. aren't they? Yeah, that's problematic. But if it's just simply the case that you're walking across there and you forgot one day mm. to take off your shoes before you walk across your hard flooring, well, that's very different to the mm. something that keeps going and, and going. We talk about the body corporate having to act reasonably mm. under Section 94 of the Act. Mm. But really, the common sense approach is that really everyone in community living has to act reasonably. That's right. They? Yeah, yeah, they do. Uh, even if that wasn't a requirement, Mark, there's still, a re- mm. there's still I would argue, uh, the need to be practical yeah. about this. And, and we come back to this example that we've just been talking about. If you are living in a multi-storey apartment complex in the middle of the CBD, mm. you've got to expect some disruption. Yeah. It is not going, you are not going to be living in an insulated, <laughs> uh, n- completely noise-proof situation. Mm. That's not realistic to expect mm. that. You expect some disruption, but it's about what the limits of that disruption yeah. are and what, and not just for you, but for everybody in the scheme. So in the same way that you have a right to quiet enjoyment, that phrase is trotted out all the mm. time, the person above you has a right to live their life. There's competing as rights, well. aren't there? Mm. Yeah. We've talked about noise and noise 
can be measured. Mm. What about things like smoke? Mm. Smoke is the next level up mm. in difficulty because, and there's adjudication decisions that say, well, unless it's going through an air conditioning system or unless you can show it's going to endanger the health. And, well, let's talk about the health. I think um, where some adjudication decisions are, are going and have gone in the past is to the point of endangering your life, mm. basically. Mm. Now, mm. people could say, well, well, smoking endangers life, but I think the intent there is, is it immediately and acutely endangering your life? Mm. Because like drinking, smoking's allowable, but mm. and smoking is transitory, mm. like noise, it, it happens. Mm. So you're really looking at the extent, the merits of the case, mm. but smoke's very difficult, isn't it? It's a really challenging topic. And I've got to say, Mark, we are receiving more and more inquiries about smoking in mm. my office from people who have got a concern about the smoking of a neighbouring occupier. Mm. I'm not sure why that's the case. Perhaps people are just becoming more health conscious, Mark. More and informed. More informed. Well. I'm not sure. And it's a particularly challenging issue because this is an issue which veers away from a pure kind of legal and justice-related question yeah. into a into a health, yeah. safety and social justice yeah. position, Mark. So that's a real challenge because on the one hand, you've got my office, which is in the business of applying body corporate legislation mm. to a situation versus another situation where you've got somebody, as you say, Mark, and it's mm. happened in my office from time to time, mm. arguing that their life is being threatened by mm. the impacts of secondhand smoke. Very, very difficult. There is a, a bit of case law around which establishes uh, effectively what is required to bring about an effective nuisance uh, mm. application yeah. in relation to smoking. The key one there is Norbury v. Hogan. Yes. Yes, which I think establishes quite well. And I think anybody who's got an interest in smoking and what could potentially be mm. done about smoking in a community title scheme should have a look at that. Yeah. Given that that's in place, Mark, and given that the issue of smoking has been examined by the government in its property law review, no decisions have been made mm. at this point in time. So we work with what we have at this point in time my office is looking at addressing it from an information perspective mm. in that case and we're doing some work with a couple of stakeholder groups to put out some collaborative information about smoking from the point of view of dispute resolution from my office but also from the point of view of the actual smoking problem mm. um, what can be done or what should be done in relation mm. to smoking so I appreciate that that necessarily won't address everybody's concerns, mm. but given that this is where the situation is at, you hit upon it just before in your introduction to this particular topic, Mark. As much as you or I or the general public may dislike smoking, may think it's the most revolting habit on the face of the earth. Fair enough. It's still legal. Yes, Mark, that's it, right. It, it has not been outlawed. There are a lot of restrictions on smoking. Advertising is the main one. Oh. Uh, and then there's a lot of restrictions about where it can be done in relation to public places and enclosed spaces. All of that's Highly relevant. regulated. That's there, right. Isn't it? It's still a legal thing to do. It's still legal. So there's a balance that needs to be achieved there. That's being worked on for the time being when it comes to smoking bylaws or applications for nuisance in relation to smoking 
does require what I would say is a reasonably high threshold of yeah. evidence to support it. Every case is considered on its merits, though. Yes. But that Norbury v. Hogan case that I mentioned establishes some of the benchmarks there. And again, it's very difficult to explain this to somebody who is a non-smoker mm. and who has a specified medical condition. Uh, a respiratory condition mm. is the most obvious example yeah. of that, Mark. To be able to say to them, look, here is what's required, because from their perspective, their argument is a pretty simple one, isn't it, Mark? Mm. I've got a health condition which is being made worse to the point of potentially being life-threatening as a result of what somebody else next door mm -hmm. is doing. I appreciate it, I'm empathetic towards it, but unfortunately I have to put on my impartial yeah. quasi-judicial hat and say, okay, but if you want to actually do something about it from the perspective of the body corporate, here's what you need to consider. Yeah, mm. and there's a lot of things they need to accumulate before they can mm. really, I think, mount a, a compelling case. Mm. Mm. Yeah, because one cigarette on a balcony is just, I don't believe it's going to cut it really mm. that's one of the um challenges but there are many more mm. um what about towing so <laughs> this is uh, a nice segue then, Mark, <laughs> because one of the things my office is trying to focus on uh, at the moment is i mentioned it before in relation to smoking is collaborative initiatives mm. working with both government and non-government agencies with an interest in the topic to put out information the benefit of that is there's a variety of perspectives mark and it covers off both body corporate and non-body corporate related things in relation to that one topic. So mm. I've mentioned it with smoking, towing is another one. Yeah. So you've got towing in relation to bylaws in the body corporate, and then you've got other towing legislation mm. as well. This was a very, very topical issue, particularly here in Brisbane and Southeast Queensland about 12 months ago, yeah. uh, to the point where new laws were introduced in the parliament to regulate how towing was conducted in buildings. There are now, and I don't know the exact uh, details, Mark, but there are now laws about signage, about when towing can be done. I think even laws about what amount of money can be charged mm. to get a car from the pound. We're currently working with the Department of Transport and Main Roads to produce some information about mm. towing. So we give our perspective on towing from the body corporate perspective and Transport and Main Roads would give their perspective yeah. about those issues. So we're working on that. Hope to have something about that in the near future. Mm. From the body corporate perspective, I've got to say, towing, whenever I do a public seminar, Mark, I can guarantee a number of questions mm. about towing every time. And the most obvious question I always get asked is, can we tow? And I like, as much as I don't like answering questions with a question, yeah. I usually do in this case. And what I say to people is, look, um, have you considered the consequences of you towing this car? So say, for example, you're, you're saying to me as a committee member, we want to tow that vehicle. It's, it's offensive being there for whatever reason and so on. Okay, have you considered the consequences here? Do you know what your liabilities are if that car gets damaged in transit mm -hmm. on the way to the impound lot? Do you know what your liabilities are if it is damaged at the lot? Do you know what your liabilities are if there is something stored inside that mm. car and it either gets stolen or damaged or something happens to it, either in transit or that lot? Invariably, Mark, the person asking me the question says, no, I they don't, don't know. know. To which my response is, well, why would you do it then in that case? You need to be, from a committee perspective, 100%, I would argue, 100% sure yeah. that what you're doing, put aside whatever 
I might say, my office might say, what the legislation might say. Put that to one side. You need to be very sure about what you're doing in that situation mm. because, again, this is an emotive situation. Yeah. People's cars are extraordinarily significant to Their them. Livelihood depends yeah. on it sometimes. Livelihood, it? but mm. there's a strong emotional attachment yeah. to one's vehicle, Mark. Mm. So the idea that another entity would go about the process of removing it or taking it somewhere or potentially mm. damaging it in that process immediately sparks a very, very strong reaction on the part of whoever's vehicle it is. The converse is true, of course, mm -hmm. though, Mark. If I have a car park that I use every day and I've come home after a really, really long and challenging day and there's someone in my car park, that's immediately going yeah. to be a catalyst for a very strong reaction there. And rightly, you can understand it. Mm. So uh, it's a very, very difficult situation. So from the body corporate perspective, again, it's a bylaw situation. Yeah. There might be bylaws about how and where vehicles can be parked. It's quite common, for example, for there to be a bylaw about visitor parking, even though the concept of a visitor is not defined under body corporate legislation. Mm. We often get inquiries about that, it? Mark, that mm. what's a visitor? I don't know. What is a visitor? Well, yeah. we've talked about that. Mm. Uh, are, are they on the, what's their electoral role say? What's mm. their driver's mm. license say? How long for? That's right. All these factors can play into it, but it's oddly enough not defined isn't it it's not so mm -hmm. for example what if mum comes to babysit for me every week for no every other week for a few days at a time is she a visitor in that case or mm -hmm. is, is there something else there in that situation yeah. what if i go away for two months and i ask mum to come and look after the place for two months for me is she a visitor at that point or is mm. she an occupier at that point mark i don't know it depends on the situation so there needs to be clarity about the parking situation this is where signage i think becomes yep. relevant but not just any old sign but a sign that is accurate and clear if you just put up a sign and say no parking here whatsoever under any circumstances well that might be definitive from the point of view of the committee is it actually correct is it actually accurate those are the questions the committee mm. must ask itself so, and that signage issue has been covered under that yeah. other towing legislation to yeah. a certain effect then there's the situation about, well, if you are going to tow, uh, how do people know about it? How do they find out? If I go out after being somewhere and find that my car's missing, what's the trigger for me to find out that it has been That's towed right. and where, where it's gone? Find out? How are you going to provide that information? Is there going to be signage about the phone number to contact? Or what are you going to do in that situation? Well, so, Especially if there's no caretaker. That's right. So there have been a number of adjudication orders from my office in which towing has been ordered as a consequence of that order. And uh, look, each case is considered on its merits, mm. Mark. What has generally been found is that the adjudicators have talked about the common law right of the body corporate committee to potentially tow the vehicle mm. there needs to be something reasonable specific yeah. about towing in the first place mark for it to for a committee to feel comfortable about pursuing that mm. option now again the issue of towing has been under review by the government in its property law review and a number of things have been contemplated there. For example, the idea of what is an urgent situation requiring a potentially urgent tow. And a good example of that is a vehicle which is blocking utility infrastructure. Like a hydrant. And That's right. Like that. Yeah, or yeah. a fire exit yeah. or something like that. At the moment, there's no distinction mm. between parking breach and an urgent parking breach. 
potentially that might happen, but we don't have any particular outcomes on that mm. at the moment. So I come back to what I said at the start. We're going to put out some information which clarifies from our perspective as much as we mm. can mark the situation with towing. Transport and main roads are going to do something similar. That won't necessarily solve everyone's concerns about mm. towing. Might get us part way there, though. Yeah. Interestingly, some bylaws will impose a monetary liability for That's things right. like that, which, mm. of course, the BCCM Act says Section mm. 180 can't impose. So those kinds of things are a no-go zone for a body corporate. Another no-go zone is to simply not exhaust all your other preliminary pathways before you simply go and tow. The other limitation there, perhaps, is not having the right information, as you pointed out. Uh, it's interesting that uh, a lot of committees grapple with this, and they're multifaceted issues. Mm. So you might find someone is parking in visitor parking, and it's got this secondary issue of the need to tow. Maybe it's abandoned, maybe it's a, a mm -hmm. tenant, maybe mm -hmm. it's an owner that's gone on holidays for six months. What are tips that you'd say to a committee to address that issue in terms of a pathway best practice, mm. reasonableness, and something that is sustainable in terms of a long-term solution. Sure. First thing I'd say, Mark, is that towing is an option of almost last resort. Let's be very clear mm. about that. As frustrating as it is, as it is to come home and find that somebody is parked in your spot, you don't immediately say, right, let's tow the vehicle. That's not your, I would argue, it's not yeah, your first absolutely. step. So it's about, um, communication is always the start point here. So I come back to what I said before about bylaws. Does everybody know what the bylaws about parking are? You can't make that assumption. So how mm. do we make sure that they do? By clearly articulating it and by clearly publicising it. And, and even a step before that, make sure your bylaw about parking is actually clear That's right. and enforceable in the first place. Bearing in mind Section 180 of the Act, and its limitations on how bylaws can be made. So there's all of those preliminaries yeah. in the first instance. Then it's about making it clear. Then it's about making it clear if there is an initial set of problems. It's, I think, Mark, mm. for me, it's about identifying the source of the problem. So is your building in a situation or an area where there's a lot of transient not transient maybe isn't the right is word. it a problem yeah. yeah but if you're building in a high density area where there are a lot of restaurants and yeah. a lot of shopping for example that's mm. going to prompt people to want to potentially park if so could you reach out to the proprietors could you reach out to the managers could you reach out to those other people and say look we represent the body corporate for this building. We're finding a few instances now of people parking here, not because they are genuine visitors or occupiers, but because they're going to your shopping center. We know this because we see it on CCTV. We see them walking back and forth. Is there something that you can do from your end to make people aware of that? Why not reach out and mm. do that in that situation, Mark? After that, I think legal advice about what your obligations and liabilities are in relation to towing. So if you are a committee and you've gone through all those preliminaries that mm. I have just talked mm. about, Mark, and you think, no, look, our only option is towing because we've got a consistent problem and that's the only solution given what we've attempted. Okay, get some legal advice. Do you have a standing under your bylaws yeah. as they currently stand to do that? Yes, okay. Have you examined all of those liability issues that I talked about at the start? Yes, maybe you wouldn't feel maybe mm. you would feel empowered to tow yeah. at that point. But if any of the answers are no, or if any of the answers are I'm not sure, 
I would be suggesting to a committee mm. that that's probably not a good idea at that yeah. point. Yeah. And do you think even um, engaging a third-party intermediary to negotiate yeah. with, say, a commercial owner who's operating, yeah. say, a restaurant, yeah. uh, and or uh, negotiate um, with uh, another owner as an intermediary step? Yeah. And of course, your office has the conciliation. That's right. Um, but mm. that's a dispute resolution process. Mm. I guess these are all dispute resolution yep. steps, aren't they? But um, in terms of the body corporate being proactive and perhaps thinking outside the square yeah. uh, before they come to going half-armed with uh, yeah. an application, perhaps. Yep. Yeah, no, absolutely, because it's all well and good to lodge an application with my office. It won't get an immediate result in most situations. So there's all the more motivation for a body corporate to try different strategies. And I'm in the business of actually trying to prevent disputes or mm. dampen them down. Now, obviously, I've got a vested interest in not having disputes lodged with my office. It's one less thing for us to deal with. But from a much, much broader point of view, Mark, if my office can put out some best practice tips to people, things to think about, things to be prompted, mm. at least prompt the thought process around yeah. it, surely that's a much better outcome than people sort of taking a big stick approach to resolving a problem. The big stick might be required, Mark, at some point in the process, and I'm not for a minute trying to minimise people who have got some serious parking. I know people have got mm. parking issues. Oh, yes. it, it happens all the time. So I'm not trying to minimise that. What I'm trying to say, though, from a very, very practical perspective, think about what is actually occurring. Think about the nature of the problem. Again, narrow the focus down, Mark. So you've got a problem with parking. What's the real problem yeah. occurring here? Is it the people living there don't know what the obligations are? Is it the visitors are the problem? Is it something else altogether? Think about those things. That way is your path to a solution, mm. I'd argue. Well, exactly. The mm. subsidiary solutions mm. to the competing elements that can actually help resolve the entire yeah. thing often, can't they? Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's... Um, a, awesome discussion with you Chris on these topics that I certainly see day in day mm. out your office mm. sees them and mm. and I'm sure a lot of lawyers resident managers committees listening will see them too mm. and certainly we'll keep a lookout for any further information your office puts out and certainly the media in terms yep. of uh, working with other government organizations and uh, we'll put those out on our website as well are there any other things you want to tell listeners about how they can access your office Look, I think the best thing people can do is subscribe to that newsletter. That is how we push out information about new developments uh, and things in the pipeline, Mark. So www.qld.gov for victor.au forward slash body corporate. You can sign up and subscribe for our newsletter there. That's where we would also release some of that uh, information that I've been talking about mm. today. That's how we let people know about forthcoming seminars. The other thing that we're doing a lot of is webinars. It's uh, We've done a few now. They've been extraordinarily popular because the ability for you to sit at home or at work and you can be doing something else, mm. but you can be listening and you can participate. You can ask a question live. Hopefully we'll get to it. Uh, one of the more recent ones we had about bylaws, funnily mm. enough, Mark, we had nearly 500 people yeah. registered to attend. And they're great. I've, yeah. I've well, tuned in. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. So that is a, a great way that we're going to get information out. And that's where we'll advertise when the next one is. Awesome. We'll have those links up on the website. Thank you so much, Chris. Uh, Thank we look you, Mark. Just chatting again. My pleasure. That's it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Let's Talk Strata podcast. 
For your fortnightly dose of Strata Insights, stimulating discussion with leading Strata professionals, and to catch up on previous episodes, subscribe to the podcast through letstalkstrata.com.au.